Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to News from the Torah. This is Leah Aroni. Today is the 30th day of the Hebrew month of Sivan, the last day, and Rosh Chodesh Tammuz, the start of a new month, Tammuz, and 29th of June 2022, and this week we are reading the Torah portion of Chukat. In this Torah portion, we read about the laws of the Red Heifer, an interesting and secretive law that has no rational explanation. We'll also read about the death of Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Moses and Aaron, and about the Jewish people's journey towards the land of Israel and their relationship with the different nations that surrounded the land of Israel on their way. On this show, we would like to bring these topics together and shed some light on an obvious and competitive issue that is facing America and, as a result, the rest of the world, and that's the abortion debate. We'll talk about the legal implications of this Supreme Court decision, the moral implications, and the social implications for America from a standpoint that I don't think are always considered in this discussion. And we'll also talk about the legacy of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who everybody knows, an iconic figure, not just in the Jewish world, but in the general world, whose date of passing will be marked this coming Shabbat. So all of this and this show, let's go. Last Friday, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned the Roe v. Wade decision from almost 50 years ago. Roe v. Wade said that women have an inherent constitutional right to perform abortions. And now the Supreme Court has reconsidered and gave the states back the ability to legislate on this issue. This seems to be a legal states' right issue, but really it's not. Roe v. Wade tried unsuccessfully to put the lid on the raging public debate on abortions by saying that there is a constitutional right to abortions and shutting down any public debate. This decision was not successful and was premature because, as we see 50 years later, this issue is still hotly contested by the public In the public, it is debated, and no closure has been created. So now the new decision by the Supreme Court opens up the issue for public discussion and legislation. And really, in a democracy, this is how decisions need to be made. They cannot be boxed in by a court decision, but rather the people of the state, of the country, need to have a healthy, respectful public debate. And as a result of that debate, reach some kind of legislation that will educate that issue. And that's true not just about abortion, but about every single public debate and every single moral issue. But my biggest problem with the current American discussion of abortion is that it is completely flat, black and white, 
with no possibility of entertaining opposing views. It lacks both respect for the opinion of other people and nuance. This approach that only one value is important and which wipes out the need to even entertain or consider other values doesn't just kill morality. It kills critical thinking, civil debate, and social cohesion. If I don't need to think deeply about issues, if I don't need to entertain other possibilities, if I don't need to look from other vantage points, then I'm looking at a very flat, undeveloped, and primitive world. And if I don't need to entertain your outlook, if I don't need to think from other people's viewpoints, then we cannot have a healthy, productive discussion. Once again, we don't have to agree, but we at least need to hear what the other side has to say. This is critical for any kind of conflict. And conflict is good because in conflict, we figure things out. We become more productive. We expand our vantage points. But conflict needs to be done properly. And to be done properly, it has to be done respectfully. We need respectful debate in which everybody is open to hearing other vantage points and then expanding the outlook. So if we are unable to do that, we become blind to most of reality. In the physical world, we have a 120-degree field of vision in a 360-degree reality. Can we at least agree that there could possibly be some truth in the other position? And then see if we can possibly balance things out. If I can find the grain of truth in what I'm saying, and I think I can find a grain of truth in what you are saying, that in the end we can reach more creative, interesting possibilities. But if we all dug in our opinions and cannot even entertain the ability to think critically, then we're doomed to never finding ways out. It all comes back to teaching in the Tanya that the world is ruled through a variety of sfirot, omidot, which are really translated as divine attributes, as ways in which God relates to the world, but also we relate to ourselves and each other. And they can also be translated as outlooks or values. The world is not a flat, it's not black and white, it's colorful, and each color adds another dimension to reality. In the same way, in social and religious and moral issues, different outlooks, different values add dimension and color. And in creating any kind of social structure, in making any kind of moral decision, we need to entertain and consider all values and then create a balance. And on each question, a different value will take priority while not overriding the other values. And on the same issue, in different cases and circumstances, one value may become more prominent than the other. So, for example, on the issue of abortion, an abortion of a child who has a congenital issue and whose life will be not viable is very different from a case of an abortion in a case where the child's life endangers the mother. And all of that is very different from a case 
of a mother who wants to have an abortion because it's getting in the way of her having um, a vacation or going to college or having a career. And all of that is very different from a case of an abortion where the mother wants the child and the father doesn't. Each one of these cases involves an abortion, but each one of these cases involves different needs, different approaches, different values, and need to be handled differently. So this blank, yes, abortion, everybody can have an abortion for any reason whatsoever, or no, abortions are forbidden, no way, no how. These blank, black and white approaches kill our ability, abort our ability to be critical thinkers and to understand that life is not white and black, that there are different circumstances and we need a nuanced approach for each one of them. Because if we take this, this ability to look at every issue from different vantage points is presented by the Tanya as a hallmark of healthy psyche, healthy people, and healthy societies where we can understand that things are complex, appreciate the complexity, and then in the complexity, find different ways and then choose one way that is most balanced. And the epitome of brokenness, both social and personal, is the embracing of just one value to the exclusion of everything else. And the defensiveness that cuts off our ability to look at the world as complex and multidimensional, because it always is. We live in a 3D physical reality. Then that has another dimension of time. And this complexity of our physical world, this colorfulness of our physical world, is just a reflection of the complexity, nuance, and colorfulness of our world of ideas and values. So please, let's not break down our world into black and white flatness. We would not want to live in a physical world like that. And we certainly don't want to live in a conceptual and value moral world that's only black and white where we cannot have a conversation. So this is what I have to say about the actual raging debate on abortion. Now, I'd like to say a few words about the actual ideas. What does the Torah say about abortion, about right to life or right to choose, pro-life, pro-choice? What are the Torah outlooks? And once again, it's going to be complicated because the rabbis over the years have discussed this issue. There's about 1,500 years of rabbinic debate on the issue of abortion. The bottom line is that all rabbis agree that fetal life has at least significance and value. They don't all agree that uh, life starts at conception. Some of them most of them actually do hold this viewpoint that life starts at conception, but it's not an across-the-spectrum opinion. And other rabbis believe that fetal life has value and cannot be killed and cannot be wasted, but not because a fetus is a person, a fetus is a life, but for other reasons. So all rabbis agree that a fetus at least has significance 
and at least has value. Also, all rabbis agree that when a fetus endangers the mother, it can be aborted up to the point up to the point of the birth. So now these are the parameters, and inside of that, there's a lot of gray areas. What does endangering the mother mean? Does endangering the mother mean only physically? How about psychologically? And at what point during the abortion? An abortion at week 10 is not the same as an abortion at week 30. And what kind of a fetus is it? Is it a viable, healthy fetus? Or is it a fetus that has a congenital issue and will be maimed for life? So there are many, many nuances that have to be taken into account and this is why abortion is a case by case decision and different rabbis will have different outlooks. What's very clear is that Judaism rejects this wanton right to choose and perform an abortion for any reason whatsoever at any stage whatsoever. That's definitely beyond the pale. It does recognize the need for abortion in certain cases. And then the discussion is, in what cases is it moral and in what cases is it not moral? Because all rabbis agree there is, there is at least significance to fetal life, if not life as, as it is. So, yes, like just like every other issue in Judaism and in the Torah, this issue is complex, and it has to be treated as complex. And because it is complex, it has to be legislated. Because the point of legislation is to figure out this complexity and set up rules. For example, almost every country in Europe puts a cap on abortions. Whether it's 12 weeks, or 14 weeks, or 18 weeks, or 20 weeks. No country in Europe, for example, gives the right to abortion up until birth. And when Biden said that America is an outlier on this issue of abortions, he was right, but not in the way he meant it. America is an outlier on the issue of abortion because until now, America basically allowed for abortions as a human constitutional right that was not legislated and that was not um, put a cap on. Every other country in Europe puts a certain cap on abortions and legislates it. And that's exactly the point of this Supreme Court decision, to create public debate and at least allow a possibility for some states to put a certain limit on abortions. Other states that want to uh, allow for free abortions can certainly do so. And the other states that want to create a limit on abortion can also do so. So it's giving the power back to the states to make an opinion and to create legislation. Now I want to talk about this idea of the right to choose. Let's say that you believe that a fetus does not have life, okay? It's a limb of the mother, and the mother can decide what she wants to do with her limbs. Judaism doesn't see things this way. Judaism doesn't think we have a right to make any kind of decision about our body. We cannot cut ourselves. We cannot maim ourselves in any way. A person is not allowed to kill himself. A person is not allowed to cut off his finger. Obviously, when there are medical reasons, then yes. But we don't have a right to our own bodies. And this is how Judaism outlook is very, very different 
from Western society. Current Western conversation is all about rights. Even on the issue of abortion, it's the right of the mother to her body versus the right of the fetus to his life. But actually, we cannot pit this, these two rights against each other because both of these rights, both of these entities, the mother's body and the fetus's life, stem from the same place, and that's God. The same God that gave the mother her body is the same God that gave fetus its life. And it's the same God we need to look back to and say, God, what do you want from us? So a mother has her body as a tool to serve God. And the fetus has its life because one day, hopefully, the fetus will be born and it will serve God. So these two concepts are not at odds with each other at all. And this is why God said that in certain situations, we have to make certain decisions. But more than that, Judaism actually does not recognize the very concept of rights. And I know this is something that's very hard to hear and understand and wrap your head around for Western people. What do you mean there are no rights? Our entire society is based on rights. Every single decision we make is about whose rights trump whose rights. Our entire social discussion is the discussion of rights. And the seminal document of American culture and civilization is the Bill of Rights that gives people inalienable rights. So this concept, even this word of rights, the word for rights, does not exist in Judaism and in the tens of thousands of Torah Jewish books throughout the ages until about a few decades ago. Why is that? We cannot think about something that we don't have a language for. And Judaism does not have a language for rights because nobody has rights. People only have responsibilities. My rights, the protection of my body, my property, are coached in Judaism in the language of your responsibility. So I don't have a right to my life, but you have a responsibility not to kill me. I don't have a right to my property, but you have the responsibility not to encroach on my property, and so on. This concept is very fundamental and very different from everything we see. Because once again, it reflects a realization that we're not here for ourselves. We're not here to serve ourselves. We're not here to advance our agendas. Each person comes into the world for a purpose. Each person comes into the world to serve. Each person comes into the world not because they chose so, but because God chose so. And if God chose to bring us into the world for a purpose, if we are constantly on God's payroll, that the guiding question of our life should not be, what are my rights, but rather, what does God expect of me, and what are my responsibilities? It's a fundamental 
switch in how people view life and society and everything around them. And if we all walk around the world thinking about our rights, then we will always be at odds with each other. Because my right to quiet and your right to make loud music will crash. My right to do things as I want and your right to do things as you want will clash and will always be in this conflict, in this legislation, in this discussion of whose rights are more important, just like we are about the abortion issue. And this is why this issue is so hotly contested with so much strife and hate. But what if we would walk around the world asking ourselves, what is my responsibility? What is my responsibility towards you? And you would walk around the world thinking and asking, oh, what is my responsibility towards you? If we looked at each other and asked, what is my responsibility towards myself, towards other people, towards my society, towards my God, there would be so much less conflict. There would be so much more respect. There would be so much more honor. There will be so much more selflessness. There will be so much more service, so much more good. It's a completely different approach to life. It's a completely different approach to everything. So the next time you get into a discussion of rights, whose rights are more important, why don't you put that discussion aside for a few minutes and ask, what are my responsibilities? What are the different parties' responsibilities in this situation or in this conflict? What should each person bring to the table? And after you pose that question, you may reach very different answers. And this brings us to this week's Torah portion, the Torah portion of Chukat, which literally means a law. The Torah has different kinds of laws. There are laws that are called mishpatim, laws that are understandable and reasonable for human mind. For example, the law to honor one's parents, the law not to steal and not to kill. That's a reasonable law we can intellectually understand. We don't need a reason for it. And other nations and other societies have instituted similar laws, even without a commandment from God. But then there's a different category of laws, and these laws are called chukim. Chukim are laws of, why? Because I told you so. Chukim are laws that are given by God and that don't seem to have an explanation that we would not have thought of by ourselves were we left to our own devices. For example, the laws of kosher. Why is a certain animal kosher and another animal not kosher? We have all kinds of explanations, but those are what are called tamea mitzvot, the tastes of mitzvot. It is our explanations that give us a sense of meaning in these laws. But really, really, we keep these laws not because of the explanations of reasons that the rabbis have given over the ages. These laws are chukim, and even if you don't connect to any of the explanations or reasons, you do these because God said so. Now, it is said that King Solomon, who was the wisest of men, understood 
the logic of every single law in the Torah. He was the only one to ever really dive in and pierce into the inner logic and the thought of God behind every single law in the Torah, besides one. The one law that he could never understand the logic for was the law of the Reith Hafer, which is the law which is referred to in this week's Torah portion. When the Torah portion starts with Chukat, the law, the law that has seemingly no rational explanation is the law of red heifer. Red heifer was an animal completely, completely red with no white or black hair at all. And during the time of the temple, it was a special service and this heifer was killed, was killed, slaughtered, and then burned with, you know, with certain other ingredients. And that, that ash was sprinkled on people who were impure, by coming to contact with death. And this sprinkling process and ritual then turned them ritually pure and they could go into the temple. The reason that Jews don't go up to the Temple Mount today, although it is the holiest site for the Jewish people, is precisely because we don't have this red heifer ash and we cannot be purified. Now there's a very interesting part of this law and that is that the red heifer ash turns a pure person impure and the impure person pure. And King Solomon could never understand the rationale of this law. It's the ultimate no logic law. And the reason for that is, is that ultimately the Torah is not about serving your own logic. As long as we understand things intellectually. They make sense and they have meaning for us. When we do them, we're not really serving God. We're serving ourselves. Oh, this makes sense to me. Okay, if this makes sense to me, then it makes sense that I'll do it. But what happens when things don't make sense? In our intellectual society, in a society that's all about rights, we never put our intellect aside. Actually, we say that it is dangerous to put our intellect aside. It is dangerous to put our critical thinking aside. But what that means is that we're never, ever humbled by anything. And the Torah says we are not here to serve ourselves. We're here to serve a higher authority. And when we serve the higher authority, we need to accept that the things here that are beyond our logic, the things here that don't make sense. Now, I don't know how old you are, my listener, but if you are more than 25, 30, you probably have noticed that the things that make sense to you today that did not make sense to you five years ago, things that now you understand that you did not understand when you were younger. And it's a hallmark of maturity to understand that I don't understand everything. It's also a hallmark of modesty and humility. I think we all hate interacting with people who think they know everything, with people who think they have all the answers. And the Torah comes and says, look, you don't have all the answers. You will grow 
And as you grow with life experience and your wisdom, you will learn more, you'll understand more. But you need to understand that the things that you will never understand. You will never grasp. And for each one of us, that place that we will never grasp is at a different level. But it's a hallmark of humility and discipline to accept that there's an authority that is higher than you and that authority is God. And what the Torah tells us in this week's Torah portion is you have to set your ego aside to serve God. And that really connects with the previous portion of the show. If we're all about rights, if the only thing that interests me are my rights, I will twist the reality, I will use my mind to box everything in the world to fit my needs, my rights, my wishes. The Torah says, no, this is not how the world works. You're here to serve. You're here to actually grow and change yourself so that you can reach your potential, so that you can strive higher. And for that, you need to put your rights aside, your ego aside, and understand that there are places to strive for. There's where to grow. There's what more to understand. And I think possibly the greatest example of this approach, of this vision of seeing what's beyond, of doing not what's easy, convenient, of not what we want, but of having a vision, a greater vision for the Jewish people and for the entire world, was the Lubavitcher Rabbi, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, whose Yorzeit, the day of passing, we will mark on the third day of Tammuz in just three days from now. Rabbi Schneerson came um, to help the Lubavitcher Hasidic movement in 1952 when it was a very small group of people who survived both communist Russia and Nazi Germany and came to America, but then also traveled to other parts of the world. It was a very small decimated Hasidic movement that in the United States, the entire Torah Judaism, the entire um, community of people who wanted to continue learning Torah and serving God was shrinking as people were assimilating into the greater society. So the Torah community was on this defensive, putting up tall walls and trying to save itself. The previous rabbi, the rabbi's um, father-in-law, went on the offensive by starting to send out his messengers, his rabbis, into different communities and asking them to spread Torah, to teach Torah to other people. But it was a very low-scale operation. What the Lubavitcher Rabbi did was have this vision, which Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the previous um, chief rabbi of England, put very succinctly, where not. Nazis and Hitler wanted to reach each Jew with hate. The Lubavitcher Rebbe wanted to reach each Jew with love. The Lubavitcher Rebbe had this vision of sending his shluchim, his messengers, emissaries, rabbis, and rabbitsons to every corner of the world so that today, wherever there's Coca-Cola, there is Chabad. And these messengers are there to serve their communities, to help the people around them, to teach Torah, to bring people closer to Judaism, to bring people together in a community, to build communities and Torah life around the world. And it was an amazing grand vision. It was so grand and so far-fetched 
then the first decades even closed Chabad Hasidim rejected it. They certainly did not want to send their sons and daughters off to remote parts of the world. But the Rebbe insisted, and he was successful. And today, over 4,000 shluchim, emissaries of Chabad, serve around the world. And over the past four months, I've had the greatest privilege to work with many of them on saving Ukrainian Jews. It's the rabbis in Ukraine who risked their lives to stay back and rescue Jews from under shelling and mortifier. It is the rabbis in Europe who put everything aside and opened their hearts, houses, and communities to refugees. And today there are over 6,000 Jewish Ukrainian refugees spread all over Europe, which these rabbis are taking responsibility for. And in everything that has to do with resettlement here in Israel, I see Chabad communities open their hearts to accept new olim, new immigrants from Ukraine to Israel to help them in every way possible. And before we close, I would like to share one story that is little known, but that's very, very symbolic of the rabbi's attitude towards Jews and non-Jews as well. I think it's the epitome of the rabbi's outlook on the world and the change that one person can make when they have the right attitude, when they put aside what I want and start asking the question of what does God want, what's my responsibility, and what can I do from the place that I'm at right now. So this story is appears in the book The Rebbe by Rabbi Yosef Telushkin, and I'm just going to read it straight from the book, the way that Rabbi Telushkin shares it. One dramatic and little-known incident involved the Rebbe and Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm. In 1968, Chisholm became the first black woman elected to Congress, a powerful figure in her own right. She lacked the power to stop senior and influential Southern Democratic congressmen, many of whom in those days were racists, from assigning her to the Agriculture Committee, an intentionally absurd appointment for a representative from Brooklyn. One New York newspaper headlined the affront, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Chisholm, who wanted to work on educational and labor issues, was both frustrated and furious. She soon received a phone call from the office of one of her constituents. The Lubavitcher Rebbe would like to meet you. Representative Chisholm came to 770. The Rebbe said, I know you're very upset. Chisholm acknowledged both being upset and being insulted. What should I do, she asked. The Rebbe said, What a blessing God has given you. This country has so much surplus food and there are so many hungry people, and you can use this gift that God has given you to feed hungry people. Find a creative way to do it. A short time later, on her first day in Congress, Chisholm met Robert Doe, the Kansas congressman who had just been elected to the Senate. Doe spoke to Chisholm and expressed great concern regarding the plight of Midwestern farmers were producing more food than they could sell and were losing money on their crops. Working with Dole and on her own in an effort to eventually benefit millions of poor people and farmers, Chisholm greatly expanded the food stamps program. In 1973, 
the Agriculture and Consumer Protection Act ordered that food stamps be made available in every jurisdiction in the United States. Chisholm played an even more critical role in the creation of the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, WIC, which mandated food supplements for high-risk pregnant women and for young children at international risk. Chisholm led the battle in the House, and Dole and Humphrey did so in the Senate. And today, more than 8 million people receive WIC benefits each month. David Lookins, a 20-year veteran of New York Senator Daniel Patrick Mohegan's staff, heard Chisholm relate the story of her meeting with the Rebbe and her work on behalf of food stamps and WIC at a 1983 retirement breakfast in her honor. And she said that morning, a rabbi who is an optimist, that what you think is a challenge is a gift from God. And then she added, if poor babies have milk and poor children have food, it's because this rabbi in Crown Heights had vision. So yes, we all have challenges. We all have hard spots. We all have dark moments in our life. In those challenges, hot spots, and dark moments, our instinct is to say, what do I want? I don't want this difficulty. Make it go away. I have the right to an easy life. I have the right to do what I want. But if you truly have vision, if you truly have humility, and if you let yourself be led by the question of what's my responsibility and what does God want from me, that in the end, you can turn every challenge into the greatest gift. And on the way, you can possibly benefit yourself, your loved ones, and thousands of people around you. So with this, I'd like to end the show and send you a blessing that each one of us will look at each one of our challenges critically and find the kernel of a gift inside, that we will look at our fellow men critically and find the kernel of truth in what they're saying, and that we'll look at public debate critically and find a way to listen to what people say all around us so that we can all stay together as one cohesive society of service. This was Leah Roney with news from the Torah. Have a great week. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. 
The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 